Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of Crazy Money. Yes, we're back. We're moving forward. We're continuing to push through 2024. Today is a great day to be alive. If you get nothing else out of this next 45 minutes or so, I hope you take it as a reminder that today's a gift and you've got a lot to be grateful for. My guest is somebody who's going to totally help you do that because he is one of the world's most in-demand inspirational speakers and authors. His name is John O'Leary, and he wants you to be on fire for life. That might sound a little cheesy, but hang on. Listen to his backstory. When John was nine years old, he played with fire and got burned, like really, really burned over 99% of his body, like third-degree burns over 95-plus percent of his body. Doctors gave him less than a 1% chance to survive and told his parents that he would not live. And as I was reading his book, really reading his book, On Fire, Seven Choices to Ignite a Radically Inspired Life, you know, thinking about this kid and his parents sitting there looking at their really devastated child in the hospital, it just really resonated with me how horrific it must have been for their entire family. And yet John survived. His journey back required dozens of surgeries, years of his life, and ended up costing him all of his fingers But today, John is an incredible inspirational speaker who has addressed hundreds of thousands of people all over the world. He's the author of The Bestseller on Fire and another book, In Awe, Rediscover Your Childlike Wonder, Unleash Inspiration, Meaning, and Joy. He hosts the Live Inspired podcast, on which he was most gracious to have me as a guest. And I got to meet him. And after talking to him, as you'll hear in just a second, I was like, I got to have this guy on my podcast. He's the best. I feel like I've made a new friend through this process. And, you know, John and I have a lot in common. It might not appear that way. I've had a mostly accident-free life, thank goodness. But uh, we were both raised as one of six kids in a big Catholic family, raised by amazing, dedicated parents whose humility and grace were defining traits, as you'll hear in the way John's dad reacted when he showed up and saw his, his young child lying in a hospital bed. John and I are both husbands and dads. We have in common the goal to want to inspire our audiences to be radically aware of the value of their lives and the opportunity to make every day count. When I started Crazy Money five years ago, I probably wouldn't have said that as the goal, but that's kind of what it turned into. And I think that with all the focus on worldly success, material possessions, professional progress, and ambition to continue to make the most out of ourselves, even if they're rooted and highly authentic goals. Sometimes that ambition can push out the opportunity to be grateful for every day. And I care about that. And again, as I've said before, I do this podcast almost as a reminder to myself to just stop being so focused on moving forward and just being focused on living each day the best way we can. And John O'Leary will help you do that through his writing, through his speaking, through his podcasts. I know you're going to love this guy and want to find out more. Links to his website are in the show notes. Oh, one thing I have to tell you, every podcaster's worst dream after realizing they didn't hit the record button is realizing that they chose the wrong microphone input. (laughs) For this conversation, as you'll hear, John and I had some audio difficulties and I ended up recording through the microphone on my laptop as opposed to this fantastic professional mic that I'm speaking through right now. The audio quality isn't great on my end, but I hope you can see past that, listen past that, 
and listen to the the great and inspiring story from my guest, John O'Leary. Definitely the best part of doing this podcast is all the incredible people that I've gotten to meet. And through this podcast and doing your podcast last week, I've got to meet you. I read your book years ago, your first book, On Fire. And as I was rereading it for this, I hadn't, rem- I don't know if this is insulting to say this, but as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, I've read this book. I know this guy's story. It's like, I remember when you started talking about being a developer and trying to make money building houses or renovating houses and turning, I was like, oh, I remember this part. This really struck as horrific as the first incident that leads us into the book is it was the one where you were trying to make money as a developer that really kind of hit home to me as being a painful part. That was pain. Give us a little, and I know you've told the story 3,417 times, if not twice that, but Tell us what happened when you were nine years old. Yeah, I'll answer that by sidestepping in, in this regard, Paul, that I never told anybody this story until I was 28. So we went from enduring an unsurvivable experience, not only individually, but collectively as a family, went through that then as a community, recovered from that, went back to school, high school, college, onward, into real estate development, you mentioned, but never told anybody what had happened. So maybe later on, we can spend a little bit of time unpacking 100%. that and maybe why it matters to folks. But dude, so I'm nine. I grew up near your buddy and uh, I saw kids in my neighborhood playing with fire and gasoline and monkeys see and monkeys do. That's exactly what happened here. I figured if they could get away with it, so could I. So on a Saturday morning with my parents both at work in Para, Missouri, I walked into my parents' garage De Paris right outside of St. Louis, bent over a can of gasoline, five gallons, that's 42 pounds. And the plan was to pour just a tiny bit of gas on top of this piece of cardboard on fire. And as you know, man, I mean, you know me, you read the book. Before the liquid even came out of that can, the fumes came out, pulled the flame into the canister, created this massive explosion that picked up the nine-year-old and launched him 20 feet against the far side of the garage, setting my world on fire. So that, that's the, the beginning. That's page one of this story going forward. Let's talk about that home before we get into the incident, the details of your hospital, lengthy hospital stay and, and multiple surgeries. Who lives in this house with you? Who are your roommates? You and I had similar upbringings. We chatted about this too as friends offline, but uh, my mom and dad were married. They still are. They've been together 54 years they raised six kids. We had a trusty dog that was there the majority of my childhood. And my mother hated animals. <laughs> odd thing to say about a woman raising a, you know, six of them right, already plus right. one. But we were like the kind of kids who grew up outside. So we would find cats and she would let us bring them in. We'd find injured rabbits and we'd fix it at a cardboard box and then release it again. We'd bring turtles. Like we'd win fish up at the school fair and she'd let us raise fish and then they'd have babies. Now we're raising like a a school of fish, literally. So it it speaks volumes both about who my mom was, like she hated animals. And yet we had a zoo full time in our house. And so it really was an idyllic, awesome childhood. What did your dad do for work? Veteran, first of all, serves his nation, came back. Sorry, he was in the Korean war. Uh, He didn't serve overseas. He served in the U.S. army. And then he became an attorney? That's right. And your mom, did she work or was she a homemaker? A little bit of both. And and working with six kids is 100%, full-time work for 100%. sure. But, 
She was a school teacher, third grade, taught history, did that for several years with young kids, and then worked part-time in that work with all of her kids. So I'm the fourth out of six. Big Catholic family, mass every Sunday, that kind of thing? Prayer before meals, yes. Prayer before beds. We went to church on Thanksgiving only if we had something to be grateful for. <laughs> but Who determined? Who? Not anything grateful for, your dad would drag you out of bed and remind you, you, you did indeed have something to be grateful for. Now we're going oh, to church. Funny. So it, it was and is that kind of family. And, and man, I truly feel fortunate to have grown up in it. What number are you in the, in the order? I'm the fourth, the peacemaker. I'm fifth, youngest boy. And so your older siblings are boys <laughs> or girls? A boy, then two girls, then John, and then two more girls. All right. These are the um, the co-stars in the drama that happened in 1987. I'm going to speak to that for a moment because it's not the way I would have framed it. They just did a movie about our life. And it stars, you know, William H. Macy is one of the characters who shows up in our life. And John Corbett is from Sex in the City. My big fat Greek wedding plays my dad. And so, like, there's real characters in this movie. But for me, I, I was asked this on a radio show yesterday. What was the most moving scene? And for me, for sure, unequivocally, the most moving scene was when they filmed the fire and they filmed the reaction of the co-stars, my siblings, because all the co-stars were home that day, Paul. So to see this movie portray what actually took place in that same house 37 years earlier and to see the co-star's reaction, to see and hear the screams, and then to witness what my brother did, and then what the girls do. Man, it was unbelievable. So the co-stars were typical kids for all nine years of my life, but they became heroic stars on the day I was burned. Did watching that scene, you were there on set when it was being filmed? Was that how, What was that like? Was it traumatic? Yeah, it's traumatic insofar as it broke me to think of what my siblings went through. So the way I watch it, you know, I, I believe in grace up and down in my story, but we're going to film uh, November 21, I think is when I kind of, they, they, they began filming. And on the final trip before Thanksgiving this past year, I'm flying back from New York from a meeting and the guy one row in front of me to the right is watching Chucky's Revenge. Okay. The story about He's the a doll. It's a good yeah. <laughs> right. So at the very end of the movie, they light this poor doll on fire and still Chucky comes out of the flames and attacks. And I'm watching this kind of the way you, you're more likely to watch other people's laptops than your own, just the way flight works. So I'm watching this guy, watching this movie thinking, dude, I, I don't like watching a doll on fire. I don't want to see myself on fire in this movie. So I, I called the writer and the director and shared my feedback. And we agreed we could tell the story from the lens of the camera. So the little boy on fire running through the house on fire will be mm. the camera. So you'll never see him, but you'll see what everybody else, you'll see the other co-stars to your previous term as they see this little boy. And so I'm watching from the director's right behind the director's chair, the camera running through the house. And they have like, they call them lightning bars, but it makes the camera look like it's on fire as it's running from the garage through the kitchen into the family room, ultimately into the front hall where we had the first interaction with another human being after the explosion. And it's a seven and an 11 year old on the steps of their family house, little girls and their nightgown unprepared for this moment. And I'm watching, you know, the director's screen, their reaction, their screams, their agony. 
And then I see my brother, Jim, who was in the basement and eventually he's going to save my life, but I see his reaction. So it was triggering for me, not in regards to how it affected me then or now, but man, it breaks me to think of my siblings who I loved then and love now, what I put them through, what they witnessed, how they felt about it, how they feel about it, the dreams and nightmares they have around it and how it's affected their life, both positively in some regards, but also negatively. So that, that's what really got to me that day is they filmed the scene. And as you know, Paul, when, when you do a movie, it's not like one take. Even if you get it on one, you do it again and again and again and again from different perspectives. So it, it was a hard, long day. What did your brother do when he saw you on fire in your family's foyer? Yeah, so he's 17. He was asleep. He came up the steps. Once he heard the explosion, he woke up. But what really got him upstairs was the scream of the girls. So he comes racing upstairs. He sees me on fire. Flames are leaping three feet off of my body. My sweatsuit was engulfed in gasoline, five-gallon can, and ignited. So I'm a torch, man, three feet flames leaping off of my body. And this boy, you know, he's 17. He's just a kid, man. He runs past me. He picks up a throw rug. You're supposed to wipe your feet on it. Runs back over to me. And just begins beating me with this rug. And as I'm standing up burning, I have no idea what he's doing. But he swings down two and then three times. And then he drops the rug because he catches. He beats the flames off of himself, picks the rug back up, steps back into the fight, and swings down a fourth time and a fifth time for almost two minutes, wraps me up, carries me outside, throws me on the white grass, jumps around on top of me, runs back into a burning house, gets my sisters out, gets the dog out, calls 911, and then comes out for the final time. And the the bow on this story is 1987, the lifesaver of the year for the state of Missouri, was the 17-year-old boy who was ill-equipped and unprepared. And yet, when he heard the words action, not for a Hollywood movie, but in real life, he just moved. He became my hero that day, still is today. Mm. Where were your parents when this was going on? It was a Saturday morning. Mom was out with two of my sisters. So they were, uh, you know, record store back in the good old days of the 80s. (laughs) Kids, you know, Google it, but there there were records. So one of my sisters was big into music. They were at a record store looking for something for her. And uh, my dad was at work. Yeah. So let's cut to when... Your dad sees you for the first time after this incident. You know, man, I have four kids and I can't imagine seeing a child injured for the first time with whatever the injury might be. But my dad walks in and his child, who he left earlier that morning, wearing a green sweatsuit and long bangs, is now laying in the hospital bed with his clothes and his skin burnt off. Just this is what it is. It's 100% burn. 87% of the burns are third degree. It is a death sentence. My dad doesn't know that yet. I certainly don't know that yet. But this kid's in all likelihood going to pass away from this experience. And my sweet dad walks into this storm. Hang on. What are you thinking at this time? <laughs> well, dude, I'm, I'm nine. I, I just burnt down my dad's house. So the only <laughs> thought I had, my dad's going to kill me. You know, my dad's type A military mindset. You and I had the same kind of father. My dad spent money more readily than yours, I think. But besides that, they might have been the same guy. My dad's tough and disciplined and told me a million times not to play with fire. You know, all all the things parents do before they leave the house. My dad did too. 
what I'm thinking as he's approaching me is, dude, he's going to kill me. This this man is going to just tear me up. I don't know what he's thinking, but I know what he says. First words from my dad, and this is the quote, John, look at me when I'm talking to you. And then he adds, I have never been so so proud of anyone in my entire life. And I love you. And there's just nothing you can do about it. And then he goes, John, look at me. I love you. I love you. I love you. And you know, you've heard me say this before, or maybe you read it in the book, but I remember thinking, oh my God, like nobody told my dad what happened. Like he, he doesn't know I burnt <laughs> down the house. Like, cause to me at age nine, like that's unexplainable. How do you, how do you, how do you dress that one up? It made no sense to me. But it's it's parents' love, it's grace, and in time, when it's accepted, it changes our life. I think there are so many things required for this little boy to survive, like thing upon thing done perfectly in time. But had it not been for that first interaction with that dad and the way he showed up, the way he loved me, regardless of what I did, I'm not sure I would have had the, the courage to take the next step and the next one and the next one. As I was listening to the book, again and thinking about what got you through it it seemed to be the right combination of love and tough love and your mom's initial reaction is a great embodiment of of both of those things what did she say to you isn't she awesome i have four kids and i'm half the parent at best that they are (laughs) i know the i know the feeling and i'm like dude why can't i why can't i be a powerful parent like they were getting grace and excellence merged perfectly is almost impossible to do because we usually lean one way or another. We're too soft or too tough. And they were right on. They just hit, hit the sweet spot in the concentric circle. My mother comes in. My father had just walked out. They let one person in at a time at this point. It's before they take me away from surgery and my life's about to change in mighty ways. But before that, uh, my mom walks in, she takes my right hand, pats my bald head, and she says, I love you. So I say, mom, knock it off. Am I going to die? Like enough love. Am I going to, am I going to die? And I assumed she was going to say something to the effect of what are you talking about? You know, you're fine. We'll get you out of here. We'll get you an IBC on the way home. We'll get your root beer float, man. We'll swing you by Ted Drew's and then get you up in the the gateway arch. That's what I assumed she would say the milkshake promise. (laughs) But what what she gave dude is so, so much more important and it's truth. Which honestly, we we seldom hear politically, television-wise, maritally, relationally. Very rarely do we honestly get truth in our lives today. It's it's so healthy, though, to receive it and to act upon it. And my mother looked me in the eyes and she said, baby, do you want to die? Because that's your choice. It's not mine. And I said, mom, I don't want to die. Jeez, I want to live. And her response was good then look at me. You, you take the hand of God, you walk the journey with him, but you fight like you never fought before. You do your job, John. Your father and I will, will be with you every step along the way, but do your part and fight. And Paul, I'm, you know, this is all happening before the banks have even opened up on Saturday morning, man. It's like 8.30 in the morning. On that morning, with her hand in mine, looking into her eyes, I knew the fight was on. I had never heard of skin grafts, never heard of amputations, never heard of debridement or bandage changes or a million other terms that you learn in burn care. All I knew, and this is all you need to know, 
I don't care what y'all are dealing with right now, financially, relationally, spiritually, whatever. All I knew on day one is the fight is on. Let's Mm go. So if we were to break down that fight into phase one, two, and three, how would you think about those phases? And how did you make it through each phase? Well, I think you got to take the phases almost more like a Netflix series (laughs) where they're standalone but they play into the next one. If you, if they're interested, you keep watching. I mean, shameless went on for 12 seasons, but the first episode was standalone and it would have worked. And the third one stands alone or plugs it at two and four. So the first stage of recovery in something like this is just physical health. At some point you've got to endure, which most animals try to fight for their own life. So this isn't that candidly, it's not that heroic to want to not to die. (laughs) So I, I, in phase one, was trying not to die. <laughs> and now there's a lot of things that go that into so that. That sounds so obvious, but, but it is. That's what you had to figure out. Stay alive. Don't die. It's been like that. Not that complicated. Here's, here's, your, here's your job for the day, John. Don't die. <laughs> so, right. And then in part of that, it's like, well, how the heck did you do that, man? Because the way burn math works is they take that percentage of your body burned. So if you're at home, you'll need a long sheet of paper for this. 100, then they add age, nine, and they've got mortality. So in 2024, this child has 109% likelihood of passing away from this burn. So not dying is actually enough for a day. If you can do that in one day, in two days, in a month, in five months, like you win the day, that's, that's good. But in order to do that, a lot of things have to come into play. And I don't know how much of it you want to unpack, but one thing is a vision. I was fortunate throughout the entire time in hospital to have encouragement, to have love, to have people visiting me, to sit with me, to encourage me, and to cast a vision for tomorrow greater than today. And one of the things we individually and nationally, and I think internationally struggle with right now, and it's, dude, there's a lot of things leading to 1.4 million Americans last year attempting suicide. Lots of things go into that. But if you feel as if there's no reason for tomorrow, then why would you live today? You can unpack that with a guest far more articulate than me. But if you lose hope for tomorrow, if you lose agency that you have some say in making tomorrow better than your yesterday, then why live today? And so I, I needed as a child struggling with tomorrow, a future that is even brighter than what I'm dealing with right now. And so I had people coming in talking about vacations we would take talking about John O'Leary day at the ballpark with the St. Louis Cardinals talking about going home to a rebuilt house. Like person after person kept sitting with me in present, pouring into me in real time, but also casting a vision that allowed us to get through the agony of this moment. So how are your parents managing their life outside of John? You've got, they've got five other kids. They've got to rebuild a house. What were the logistics like for them in this first six to 12 months after the what do you call it? Do you call it the accident, the 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 event, the big Saturday, <laughs> hot Saturday. <laughs> the, <laughs> those are all good terms. I mean, I think they all play. Uh, you let me know which one works the best, and we'll use that going forward. But we used to call it the mm-hmm. accident, and then I challenged my parents on that years, like decades later, because like what happens when you hold a flame to a can <laughs> of gasoline? You know how how long can you get by calling that the accident before you call it math science? you know, guarantee. So now we usually just refer to it as like John's 
event, John's accident, even still, January 17th, that's the day it happened. And we, years ago, made a decision to view it as a gift. And that's not just my gift, but our gift. You asked about my parents. We were fortunate to have not only the gift of those folks in our life, but great community around us. My dad, like you and I, one of six. So he had sisters and a brother who came into our lives at that point and took the siblings under their wing while mom and dad were at the hospital full time. My grandparents were alive at the time. They lived in a lovely little house. They allowed my five siblings to have a community, have family in that house. That was important. There was a family in our community. They had six kids. They, I mean, listen to this, Paul, dude. Like they moved out of their house so that my mom and dad, once they were, once I was well enough that they could leave the hospital, would have a place to raise their kids. So this family, the Donovans, moved out of their home into an apartment so that that the O'Leary five kids and their two parents could have one house to feel safe in. So, you know, who was parenting while my parents weren't? The community, man. Like they stepped up in a mighty way. One of the most permanent and visible effects of the accident was the loss of your fingers. Tell me about when you learned that that was something that was irreversible. Right. So you asked about like the filming of the movie and was that a tough day? There were two hard days for me on set. The first hard day was that. And then two weeks later, they filmed a scene in the hospital. And by the way, the film was mostly life-giving and mostly about an adult recognizing the beauty of his life. Something we all need to recognize whether you've been burned or not. But we've all screwed up. We've all made mistakes. And now what are you going to do about it? So most of On Fire is a 25-year-old kid trying to figure out how do you live your life now? But one of the scenes that flashes back to is in this moment in the hospital bed when he wakes up and his parents are both crying. And this little boy, that little boy's playing me, looks up and says, hey, what's wrong? And mom starts to answer, but she loses the ability to even speak. So the dad finishes the sentence and he says, my dad, John, the surgery was a success, one step closer to home. But baby, during the surgery, they realized they weren't able to save your fingers. So they had, had, had to amputate them. And I'd never heard that term before. You know, I grew up in Missouri, man. We're not familiar with complicated terms like amputations. I, I never heard that. So I said, what do you mean amputate? And he said, they cut them off. And then I said, well, will they grow back? And he said, no, honey, they don't grow back. I'm like, well, fingernails grow back and hair grows back. And they try to explain to me that they won't grow back. And it just ends with this little boy like mourning the fact that his life has been cut short. Even as a kid, man, you, get, you place yourself back to when you're nine you're smarter than adults give you credit for. Kids are. I knew I would never get a job. I knew I would never write again. I knew I would lose my friends and lose the ability to play baseball. And what broke me that day is I knew I would never find love. Because I, you know, I don't have fingers, man. How am I going to grasp a little girl's hand? So like I was done. I was done. So that that was for me by far the hardest day in hospitals to wake up from a surgery, skin graft surgery, to learn not only did they do that surgery. They also took my fingers and in doing so took my life. When I did your podcast, after we talked, you and me talking after the interview and you picked up a can of soda and you drank from it or a can of something. And it just, it was a beer. You can, you can be honest with the listeners. I, I'm, I'm yeah, it was right a now. big jug of scotch is what it was. You, you, <laughs> and you use two hands to grab it because you don't have opposable thumbs. And just for a second, it, it just like, I was like, Oh, right. Well, that's how he drinks because, but 
you've lived for four decades almost with being a little bit different. Did you have trouble with other kids making fun of you when you were in your teens? And how hard right. was that for you? Minimally. My wife is also from a pretty big family. When when we got married, there were far more girls than boys in the wedding party just due to sisters we all had involved. So we need, needed to stack the deck with boys. We needed to just match up somehow. So ultimately, I needed to hire eight friends to being groomsmen or ushers or whatever the job title was. And I just went through this with some grade school buddies. Six of the eight were grade school friends. And it's like, well, dude, did you really not make friends your whole life? Like, are you that weak? And like, maybe I feel like I met a lot of friends in the fraternity and afterwards when I started this business and in high school. So if that's true, if the second part is true, you made friends, then why, when it came down to the day you got married, was it stacked with grade school chums? And then if that matters, why? So here's what happened. That event devastated all of us. Like it tore apart a little community. And when fires happen, it plug this into whatever area of life you want to plug it into now. But when fires happen, they either turn people away from one another and we become more divided as a nation or as a family or as a whatever, or it actually draws you together. And in our case, in our little community up here in St. Louis, this little grade school class would die for one another. That was the bond that it had in grade school. And even though many of us went to different high schools, that bond remained. And even though we all went to different colleges, that bond remained. And even though we all went to different cities afterwards, that bond remained and remains. So uh, you asked about, was I made fun of? Yeah, but not in grade school. And when it happened in high school, if one of my buddies found out about a watch out. (laughs) I'm serious, man. People would fight for me. (laughs) One time I got my foot run over and it broke when a guy accidentally ran over my foot. Okay. Like it wasn't even his fault. I'm standing too close. We're at a party, all that stuff. And one of my buddies says, do you want me to beat him up? I'm like, no, dude, I don't want you to beat this high school guy up. Like he's my friend. It just happens sometimes. So I I had friends who would fight for me. And when you're struggling in life or you're unsure of yourself in life to have people who are that committed to you and also people who you are that committed for, it can get you through some pretty rough days. And so I was made fun of. I dealt with some bullying, but usually it was resolved pretty quickly. Well, I, I asked this question as a lead in because there are certain parts of your experience and, and its effect on your body that are visible. And there's certain parts that are not visible. When and, and why did you decide that it was time to show the world your scars? Right. I mentioned this at 28. That's when my life started to change and I started to share. And I'm going to get preachy for 30 seconds. So just go get yourself a soda (laughs) pop and come on back in. I was in a church service, hungover at 28 years of age in the back row. So I'm not really committed to anything. I'm not committed to real estate. I'm not committed in relationships. I'm not committed to my health, my finances. I'm just kind of meandering through life in the back row. That sounds like a great analogy, but it's true in this case. Like I'm just on the back row, but here's the thing. I am in the room, you know, like I'm trying kind of. And this preacher uh, speaking on the, on the gift of talents, basically like whatever you have, multiply five. Great. You worked at Facebook, multiply. Good for you Two, Great. Multiply. But then ultimately it came down to those of us with only one. We're not that handsome. We're not that smart. We're not that driven. We don't have that kind of financing. Like, So those of us who feel as if we only have one gift, talent, the preacher looked around this big old church service and it felt like the bright light Paul was right on me 
And he said, and for those of you today who feel as if you only have one talent, listen to me. Your life is a priceless, precious gift. Say yes to being used for good. Did that, the conversation is 20 years old now, but I remember it. Your life is a priceless, precious gift. Say yes to being used for good. Two days later, I'm in front of a real estate development that I'm working on, but I'm doing average work at best on, but I'm fixing this building up. My phone rings and it's a little girl and she says, Mr. O'Leary, would you speak at my school? And at any other time period in the history of John O'Leary's life, the answer would have been absolutely not. But 48 hours after hearing that guy, man, say, hey, your life is a priceless, precious gift. Say yes to being used for good. I said yes. Having no idea what it would lead to, it led to a commitment two weeks downstream to speak. I practiced. It was a nine-minute talk. I practiced for about 40 hours. Lousy talk given, man. Was not even paid a box of Samoas for my effort, but that's my first keynote to three Girl Scouts. One of the dads in the room said, hey, that was awesome. Would you speak at my Rotary Club? Yeah, I will say yes to being used for good. One of those guys was in Qantas. One of those ladies ran a chamber of commerce. One of them had a relative who was a chaplain at Fort Leavenworth at a maximum security prison. In other words, it wasn't like I had some great vision for a business, for a podcast, for books, and eventually a movie. I was just trying to be present and take the next right best step by saying yes to being used for good. And you mentioned on the front side, John, I bet you share the story thousands of times. Like I've shared it with 2,700 audiences around the world. So it's a, it's a lot of times sharing parts of the story. But man, I, we're, we're convicted with it. It's mission work now. We get paid for it frequently. But it's, it's, it goes way beyond the dollars. We feel called into it. Why were you concealing your scars up to that point? For the most part, when you're young and if we're honest, I, I always assumed when I got older, I would mature and then I would be normal and fully matured like my parents. Yeah. Then you become fully matured like your parents. You realize you're not, your wife's not, your siblings aren't, your friends aren't. And these are the healthy people. <laughs> yeah. they're like, these are the ones you're like, man, they're pretty, they got their life by its tail, man. They're gainfully yeah. employed and in solid relationships. They're not addicted and they're pouring into their 401k. Like these are the people who yeah. got to figure it out. And they're broken and they're faking it and they're wearing makeup too thick and they're going in for Botox on top of the Botox. And like, it's all this mask, this mask. If that's true for us as adults, what's it like for us as kids? And if it's true for us as kids, what's it like when you're burned and you're scarred and your fingers are missing and your elbows are at 90 degrees and you walk with a limp? What's it like then to long to be ordinary? So the reason why I didn't, bear the scars is because that would be one more thing that would make me feel less than others. And at that point in our lives, and I think at every point in our lives, we want to run away from that idea. The story is amazing. And it gets even more amazing when you start to think about what you've done in terms of your impact on a global basis. I want to ask you as, as an entrepreneur right now, how did you come to the point where you felt justified asking to be paid for your time? <laughs> I mean, were you, I had breakfast with my wife today. I'm, I'm sure we, we were discussing uh, how do we get away from this? Like, is, <laughs> is it okay that we do this now 20 years in with a team yeah. of seven? And uh, the answer is yes, because we understand our value now. But that took a long time. But a lot of people have trouble asking for compensation for what feels like 
volunteer work at first anyway you know there's that's a big corner to turn in a person's professional life it's a huge it's true in professional life it's also true as a musician and i think sometimes people are like dude don't give up on the arts man don't be don't sell yeah, out then to they the band. Me 50 bucks yeah. to to perform for an hour for their highly profitable corporation right yeah. here's what happened in my case uh and yeah i think success sometimes drops breadcrumbs i did not feel worthy of being paid that's why for three years I did not accept any payment, maybe a gift card here and there or dinner out for my wife and me, maybe a few gas cards, maybe. But for the most part, it was whatever they were serving at that gathering, that rubbery chicken they served at lunch or dinner. That was my payment for delivering this, this keynote. And at some point along the way, I got the advice. You've got to know your value. You got to know your value. But like, what is the value for like an hour of work? So I challenged my, my mentor, his name was Rusty on that. What is, how do you value an hour? He goes, John, is it really that hour that you're charging for? It's the whole Picasso thing, right? But I always thought it was, yeah. man. Like, so it's an, or sometimes a 20 minute keynote. How do you value a 20 minute? Is it the hour divided by three? Is that what you do here? Uh, so he reminded me it's the 10,000 hours, the Picasso example, as you gave a moment ago. But even more than that, because you can be a hack, but if it works for value for the audience, even so, that's good. The real, real value you're charging for is less about the 10,000 hours or the Picasso, as much as how you leave people different and better than they were before they had the encounter with your art, with your financial advice, with your music, with your guitar playing, with your speaking. So what I slowly began to recognize is, my gosh, there's value here. And uh, then I hired a consultant because it's still really hard to identify your own value. And her name was Lois. Lois put my value to $1,500 a keynote. So that's what we went with. And then what happened is we got so busy at that, we realized the market's telling us we're under, or at least appropriately, maybe even undervaluing. So we jacked it. And then we did that again and again and again and again and again and again and still are. And in doing so, it provides us the freedom to think outside of the confines of a fee. So we say yes frequently. We get creative frequently, but we know our value. And that took a long time, a lot of years, and a lot of self-talk, but also bringing a board of advisors around me to remind me the impact we're having on others. And setting all humility aside for a moment, what do you think that impact is? We could talk about top line revenue. No, I don't, mean, I, don't mean, I don't mean financially. I mean, when people leave the room, how are they different than they were when you started speaking an hour before? Every week we get stories of individuals who share with us that they were contemplating life and death issues in their own individual walk and have now made a commitment, a covenant to fight forward toward their life and I reach out for someone else to get some help. We hear week after week stories of people who are addicted who are now seeking help. And that addiction is not just drugs. I mean, trust me, man, everybody in this room is addicted to something. So we get stories of individuals who recognize they were and they want to do better. We get stories of people who were dead in their faith or dead in their marriage or dead in their parenting or had not spoken to an adult sibling in decades who had made a change to wake up, to be alive in these areas that matter. Frequently, organizations will talk to me about top line and bottom line. And I always go back to them. If that's who you want as your speaker, you're bringing on the wrong guy. I believe the work we do will drive those things, but that's not why we do the work, man. We do the work to keep people alive, to keep them engaged in their life and to remind them of the agency they have to live life better today than they did yesterday. I was looking on your website 
in preparation for this conversation. And you've got a three bullet point platform that I really like. And you can be Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, atheist, and still believe in all these things. And you've already talked about number one, which is that our life is a sacred, awesome gift. How does keeping that front and center help people achieve their potential? Mm. Man, we, we yawn at the sunrise. <laughs> we get pissed when they put milk instead of cream in our Starbucks in the That's morning. That's a big like, how deal. Come- I, that one I'm going to – I didn't freak out about the not having dark roast the other day, but I, I had to catch myself, John, to be honest. I rattled the cage. I, I found your trigger. The point is the life we lead, frequently we live as if it's mundane and ordinary and boring and maybe unworthy. And yet if you look east and watch the sunrise, or if you recognize the profound challenge of getting that dark roast coffee bean to your favorite barista on time to make that cup of coffee, like it is incredibly complicated. If you look at even okay, the likelihood or unlikelihood of you being here, it's one in 406 trillion, I think is the math of your father and your mother at the right moments leading to Paul or John's life. Meaning mathematically, the fact that you're in the game is shocking. I don't, you mentioned the word atheist. I don't care if you're an atheist or you're the strongest, most devout believer out there. The fact that you are alive ought to blow your hair back all day long. To say nothing of living in a free society with a rule of law and freedom of speech and all the advantages we take for granted here in the state. So that's a different level, though. That is even requiring you to have the context of history. For those who've read any history, we get angry at what happened in the 90s, 80s, and 70s. Go back a decade earlier, or a century, or a millennia, or farther, and you will realize we keep getting better. It's not perfect. It may not be this side of eternity, but the arc of civilization, these are FDR's words, are pointing up and to the right. Like that ought to fill us with so much hope. And instead we clench our fingers and we try to fight everybody. It's the strangest thing. We've never been wealthier, healthier, and I think wiser, more connected, freer to speak and to travel than we are right now. And we're mad about everything. So part of my work is to remind people of the divine nature that is their life and the life of those who act and look and vote and worship completely differently than they And if they recognize it both in themselves and in others, it changes the way we do life going forward. I really don't care how you worship, but I do care deeply that you respect the way someone else does. Bullet point number two ties right back into a great quote by Viktor Frankl. Will you share that with us? Tell me what the second Uh, (laughs) bullet is from your perspective. We get to choose our mindset in every situation, no matter how bleak it seems. Well, Frankl survives the Holocaust. Anytime we need an example of what the worst of humanity looks like, we don't have to go back to the Mongol hordes. You can, uh, but you can go back to probably a thing that your grandparents remember well if they're still alive. I mean, this this happened in some of your listeners' lifetimes. My father was born in 44. It happened in his lifetime. And Frankel survives it. And they've taken everything away from him, his family, his wealth, his status, but not his ability to choose one's own path, one's own agency to decide how he moves forward with his or her own life. Too often we let Biden steal ours, or for the 50% I offended with that statement, Trump. We let these people who really are so removed from our individual lives affect the way we lead our lives. And Frankel reminds us, we don't have to. We have the ability to focus on the thing that matters most, stay within our circle of control, and then take our next right step forward. Yeah. 
And speaking of agency, number three is together we can change the world starting with our own. Yeah, well, most great writers, leadership gurus remind you before you leave that organization or nation or social movement, figure out your own stuff first. So it's very easy to grab a bullhorn and yell at the other side and then go back to a house that is in disrepair. So the first step is to figure out, you know, you do a lot of work around finances, around finances, around mental health, around spiritual well-being, around emotional wellness, around physicality, showing up fully and vibrantly each day. And then as we take care of ourselves to look outward, to move beyond our own walls, to move beyond our own comfort zone, begin animating others in a direction that elevates the lives of others around us. Now that can be within families or schools or hospital centers or podcast movements, or even bigger than that. But I don't think any of that can happen successfully long-term if we ourselves are broken. So the work has to begin at home, inward work, and then become outwardly lived out. Before we wrap up, there's something I have to tell you. I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) That's weird, man. I don't know why you would say that. (laughs) Why is it so important to, to remember that you're loved and to radiate love outward? Well, I mentioned a moment ago, Victor Frankl, who was almost lost his life at the hands of the Nazis. My grandfather on my wife's side fought them. So he's an army veteran. And I met him shortly before he passed away. And the very first time I met him, a tough guy, dude, that generation, they were tough even when they were feeble. So this guy is early eighties. He's tough. He easily could have beaten me up and I'm in my mid twenties. He looked at me and he said, so your name is John, huh? And I said, yes, sir. He goes, well, John, do you know what I do when I meet someone for the first time? And I said, no, sir. He said, well, the very first thing I do is I turn sideways. I make a fist in my right hand. That way, if that person swings at me, I can duck, counterpunch, drop them. And there's nothing they can do about it. And with that, he takes a bite out of his cookie. And then he says, nothing. So one way to live life is like my sweet grandfather-in-law lived his. Always ready to fist up and swing down. Always. And it is a popular way to go through life these days. If you don't believe me, Go on Twitter, baby. Go on X. Just watch the conversations taking place with Finch closed, baby. Let's go. Let's fight, dude. Let's one-up each other. Alternatively, it's to go through life recognizing the dignity and the worth of the person in front of us, including the reflection in the mirror. So the words you spoke to me a moment ago, I say to myself, but I also say to others, I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. And the final words come from The Greatest Salesman, a book that came out in the late 60s by Ogmandino. Mandino wrote, how do I greet everybody I meet? In silence and to myself, I say, I love you. Though spoken in silence, these words unwrinkle my brow. They shine through my eyes. They bring a smile to my face and they echo in my voice. And so in a marketplace of lookalikes with cynics and naysayers and folks who live negatively, my invitation to all of us and myself is to have an open heart, an open mind, and to be on fire with love. It will set you apart. Yeah. Well, I think that's the feeling that you leave people with and that's the value. And, you know, no matter what they're paying you, it's, it's worth every penny. So uh, mm. thanks so much, man. It's been a real honor to, to meet you and, and a privilege to have you on the show. Where can our listeners find out more about your work? Thank you, Paul. And I feel like I got a friend at this point. You and I spoke for an hour before we even recorded your podcast on my show. 
which was awesome, by the way. And where people can learn more about that episode, all of our work, the book, the movie, all that stuff is at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. When's the movie coming out? It's recorded, which I've learned now is actually that, that's the easy part. Now we're <laughs> right. Does it have a distributor? Does it have a release date? Does it have... All that stuff is the dominoes are beginning yeah. to tip. So we had a call today and we're so close to having the thing firmed up with uh, like the final runtime and music and all that stuff. Then we do test audiences to see what's working, what's not. We post edit again, do it one more time, post edit one more time. And then we'll go out to the Lionsgates and the Sonys and those types of uh, larger studios in the world and show them what we've made. They're aware that this book was turned into a movie. They're aware of the actors who participated. So there's excitement brewing. At the end of the day, this thing should come out probably in November of 24 uh, or maybe the Q1 of 25. All right. And by the way, just to, put, put, to promote it a little bit, here we go, people. It's a love story. It's not a burn story. It's not an intimacy story between John and his beautiful bride, although she is beautiful. It's a story of a guy who finally falls in love with his own life. And dude, when you do that, your life begins to change. Paul, I hope you and your listeners truly fall in love with the beauty of your life and then commit to living that life going forward because it will change everything. Amen. Thanks so much, John.